welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Steve Bloomfield. This week, we're speaking to Jody Cantor and Megan Tui, the two New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story and helped, as the subtitle of their new book about the case, she said, puts it, ignite a movement around harassment and women's rights worldwide. First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's Stephanie Boland. Steph, hi. Hi, Steve. Um, now, this was obviously a story about a very powerful American man, but Me Too has had its own life here in the UK. It's fair to say, though, that we've not really had the same uh, level of stories in the UK as we've seen in the US. Why do you think that is? One big thing is that we've faced different reporting challenges here in the UK. One of the things that Jodie and Megan talk about in the book is this requirement to prove a successful libel suit in the United States. You have to show not only that journalists have printed something false, but that they did so with actual malice, which is defined as, and I love this quotation, a reckless disregard for the truth. Um, Now, that's a relatively high bar compared to the law here in the UK, where essentially the onus is always on the journalist or the publication to stand up their allegation. So we've seen here in the UK, uh, there was obviously one high-profile case with uh, with Philip Green, where the Telegraph uh, wanted to publish some allegations against him. Uh, there was a court case preventing them, and then uh, eventually he was named in the House of Lords by, uh, by Peter Hayne, uh, and some of the details of that emerged. Uh, there have been some, some other low-level cases here and there, um, but not in the same uh, way, obviously, in the US. Um, what has that meant for... Um, for the Me Too movement here in the UK, how do you think it's then it's then differed and and had an impact on 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 the way our society works? Well, there's two things around that. I mean, one is as you say, these stories have started to come out in the UK. So another big one was when Tory activist and journalist Kate Maltby went on the record with allegations of inappropriate behaviour against Damien Green, um, which we should should say he does deny. And like you say, there have been stories around business. We've had stories from theatre. Um, we've had stories in journalism, although, again, the men involved have, have tended to deny those. I think there's a, a couple of things that come out of what has been revealed or alleged thus far and the relative um, low level of those stories compared to the US example. I mean, many of the challenges of doing a story like this are the same wherever you are, right? So it's getting women to go on the record, finding that reportable paper trail and deciding what degree of risk you can expose yourself and your sources to. But I think in the UK it's often quite frustrating for the public when these stories do start to come out because it can seem like a lot of people involved knew something and it's hard for people to understand why nothing was made public before and the backlash can be quite vicious. So we have a real difficulty with getting sources I I think quite reasonably for a lot of sources, to agree to go on the record. And there's also a related set of issues in individual companies or in the political parties in Westminster in that allegations can become embroiled in politics, whether that's Westminster politics or office politics, and framed essentially as an attack on a certain group of people. So if you imagine all of the rows that take place within a political party, it can be hard if you're a staffer, for instance, to report that somebody from your own faction has done something to you. And equally, it can be difficult to claim that somebody from an opposing faction has done something to you. So all of these different dynamics um, add to the already 
emotionally fraught process of deciding to make a complaint. And away from politics and, and journalism and the mechanics of how a story comes out, more broadly, how do you think the Me Too story has changed British society over the last two years? Has it really changed it? I mean, we saw after this story broke a lot of concern from people asking if office flirting was still allowed or can you still try and give your phone number to a woman in a bar? Um, and quite frustratingly, there were a lot of you know, newspaper column and shit <laughs> spent asking these sorts of questions. Um, I think where that's had the biggest impact is on the younger generations. So teenagers now have grown up with conversations around consent and feminism as a standard part of their media um, and the impact of Me Too in, in that age group and that demographic I think is clearest but there have been structural changes and there are ongoing structural changes which are particularly important so um, growing number of companies have picked up guidelines around harassment ACAS have got some very good guidelines that people are picking up and there's also groups who are trying to change things particularly around quite diffuse workplaces because this can often be another challenge if you are going to make an allegation against somebody who maybe doesn't work in your company but works in your industry and the incident took place at a drinks night or at a conference or you're a cleaner on a contract. Um, you're from a company that's brought in to do a specific task but you're not actually in the same organisation. Who do you go to? Do you go to HR or do you go straight to the police if it's criminal or what's a reporting mechanism looking like? So there are groups who are doing a lot of work in this area. So the 1752 group in academia, women in Westminster, um, Slater and Gordon, the law firm, are doing a lot of work on insecure work, zero hours contracts. So there are structural changes starting to be made. And I think the fact that these very public, high-profile stories have happened is obviously important. We have to hold very powerful people to account. But in the longer term, it's going to be a question of what mechanisms do we reform? What new procedures do we put in place that will have a wide effect rather than just an effect on individual cases? Steph Bowland, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to the Prospect Podcast. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking to Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, 
Uh, we're joined now by Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, authors of She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. Um, the book that's all about Harvey Weinstein, Megan and Jodie. Thank you very much for coming today. We're thrilled Thanks to be here. Um, Jodie Cantor, perhaps if I can start with you. Um, would you mind starting from the beginning and telling us how this story first came about? What was it that first set you down this path? So it was actually a story that our colleagues did about the American TV host, Bill O'Reilly. I know it seems like it was a hundred sexual harassment stories ago, but it was really a game changer. And, you know, UK audiences may not know O'Reilly as well as we do, but to think about the sort of loudest, most pugnacious right-wing television host uh, possible, very, very much a fixture of the Murdoch empire. And our colleagues, Emily Steele and Michael Schmidt revealed that he had paid off women, silenced women about sexual harassment for, for a long time. They in fact eventually revealed that he had paid almost $40 million alongside with Fox to silence them. And that story, it, it, it was, it was shocking when it was published not even so much that he had done that, but that he was fired over it. Advertisers revolted. And and that was a change because for a long time, men were not really held accountable for those allegations. It also showed that the settlement trail, these sort of hushed up payments, instead of impeding a story, could become the story. Because the fact that somebody had gone to such legal lengths over time and paid out so much money became kind of a story unto itself. And it caused the editors to ask what now seems like a very quaint question. They said, are there other powerful men in American life who have abused women and covered it up? And so that's how we got to work on Harvey Weinstein. It's interesting that thing about the paper trail in that, yes, your book is called She Said, but actually one of the real strengths of the story is that there's actual proof that complaints were made and concerns raised in many of these cases around Weinstein's alleged behavior. Well, and it was one of the reasons that we wanted to write this book is that we wanted to take readers behind the scenes and walk them through all of the various challenges that we faced in the course of this investigation. And so while in the beginning we were having these hushed conversations with famous actresses like Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd and Rose McGowan who were telling us their stories of alleged predation by Weinstein, uh, nobody was prepared to go on the record. And so we set about trying to find other evidence of um, his alleged uh, wrongdoing. And that really did set us off on this course to try to track down these secret settlements that he had paid. We were ultimately able to show that Weinstein had paid at least 12 secret settlements to silence women who had come forward with allegations against him, stretching from 1990 to 2015. So in the summer of 2017, as we were working on this investigation, we came to consider her the patient zero of the Weinstein investigation. This was a woman who, like, we we also realized that there were two categories of victims, the famous actresses, but also everyday women who had gone to work for Weinstein and his companies, often as their first job out of college. So this was a young woman who had uh, worked for Weinstein in 1990 and when she had been allegedly sexually assaulted by him and disappeared from the country. And, you know, I tracked her down to a home outside New York and knocked on the door and she opened it and said, I've been waiting for somebody to knock on my door for 25 years. And yet at the same time, she was legally prohibited from telling us what had happened because she was one of those 12 women who had been silenced through these secret settlements. So we realized that if we could basically find evidence of those payments that had been made to silence the women, that that would be strong evidence unto itself. 
And of course, you weren't the the first journalist that had tried to investigate Harvey Weinstein. You know, there have been other journalists who may well have thought about knocking on that woman's door over the past 25 years. But it hadn't been the easiest story, it's fair to say, to to work on, had it? Partly because, not just of things that were hidden, but the way that Harvey Weinstein and the people around him pushed back. I think that's true, but it's really hard for us to talk about other people's journalism and what went right and what went wrong. I mean, Megan and I were very curious about it at the outset of the investigation because it it did feel that we were sort of stepping over the bodies of people who had come before us and, and failed. And what we wanted to know is what had gone wrong with their investigations. You know, I think, though, that part of the reason we were able to succeed is that we were using a slightly different toolkit than those people. A lot of people were after the -the on-the-record interviews with actresses, which are certainly very important. But Megan and I took a different approach, in part under the direction of our editor, Rebecca Corbett. We were looking to assemble a mountain of evidence and evidence of different varieties. So if you look at that very first story that we published that broke the news, two women were on the record, but there were also company records internal memo, um, sort of personnel documents from inside the company, the legal and financial trail that Megan just talked about. There were quotes from former Miramax employees saying, yes, this was a big problem at the company. And so it was almost like we were building a mountain of evidence that these women could stand on so that they would be believed. And it wouldn't be just a sort of he said, she said story in which everybody would throw up their hands and say, oh, you know, okay, they were the only two people in the hotel room. You know, there, there's sort of no way to settle this. Megan, obviously, uh, Harvey Weinstein strongly denies these allegations. Um, but maybe you could tell us one or two of the types of stories you were hearing and the sorts of complaints we're talking about. Well, it was really remarkable as we continued our reporting. We came to, whether it was in these hushed conversations with famous actresses or in the conversations with some of the former employees, women who had gone to work for Weinstein, as I said, oftentimes their first job out of college. These were women who wanted to work in the entertainment industry behind the scenes. And uh, going to work for Weinstein was often seen as like your gateway into the industry, like a ticket into the kind of dream job that you might ultimately be be able to obtain. And so, you know, we heard basically similar stories of uh, women who had been called to, oftentimes called to Harvey Weinstein's hotel room, like a lot of producers and people in the entertainment industry, especially when he was traveling, he would conduct business in hotel rooms. So in the case of actresses, they would basically receive a fax from their agent uh, saying, you know, Basically, you're expected to arrive at Harvey Weinstein's room at X or Y time for a meeting about your career and potential job opportunities. Um, other times, uh, Weinstein was the, himself the person kind of uh, allegedly badgering these women into to coming back to his hotel to discuss uh, their, their careers. Uh, and other times, in the case of the assistants, the women who worked at his companies, that was just part of their job duty, Was whether it was to kind of uh, help him sort of set up his business in these hotel rooms or otherwise help him just kind of with the comings and goings of like a day uh, in terms of getting ready and getting in and out. Um, but in all of these cases, the what was often described was, uh, you, you know, a, a, a very quick turn in which the professional turned predatory. And just to tie, I think, those last two points together about how we were able to break the story and what Megan said about the nature of these incidents 
it was the discovery of that second strand of women, the assistance that was so essential. I don't, I don't know how much previous journalists had known, you know, about that pattern. I think they knew a little bit, but the idea that Harvey Weinstein had allegedly abused his own employees, starting as Megan said in 1990, all the way up through 2015, gave our story a kind of spine because when something, first of all, there's like the particularly odious allegation of doing this to women who work for you directly. But second of all, because it happened within the companies, there was a lot more stuff to report on. There were records, there there was more legal action, there was more evidence, there was sort of... um, it left more of a trail than the behavior with the actresses had, if that makes any sense. Um, at what stage in the reporting of this did you start to realize that this wasn't just a story about a very powerful movie producer and, and his uh, abuse of women, but there was something actually much broader here? Yeah, and we always say that, and it was, it was another one of the reasons that we wanted to write the book, is that we wanted to show that this was not just a story about an individual alleged predator, that it was really an x-ray into abuse of power. So Weinstein was using, whether it was the sort of secret settlements that he had used as a tool to cover his tracks, um, or the high-priced attorneys who were by his side, he had you know, David Boies in the United States is probably one of the most famous litigators. He helped win the case of gay marriage before the Supreme Court. And he was one of Weinstein's biggest defenders. He had worked by his side for 15 years to help him conceal and spin and basically cover up these allegations when they would surface. Uh, you know, we also would come to learn that he had employed this private investigative firm made up of former Israeli Uh, intelligence officials that basically, it's not that surprising for powerful people to hire private investigative firms, but this was a firm of a whole nother order. These were agents who adopted fake identities. There also was a British journalist, uh, Seth Friedman, uh, who was also calling around to women uh, who Weinstein feared would go on the record with stories against him and to journalists and trying to fish information out that he would then pass back to Black Cube and ultimately on to Harvey Weinstein. And it was, uh, you know, it, when, when, when those, some of those details came to light, it was just, it was, it was jaw dropping. I mean, this was an investigative firm that was promised $300,000 if it could put a stop to this investigation. And that's a, that's a, that's a private investigative firm that has been used by other powerful figures uh, around the world. And so this really were just some of the strands that show how basically powerful figures have been able to, uh, in some ways, it feels like the deck has been sort of stacked in their favor and that they've been able to kind of conceal this type of alleged wrongdoing for years. But, you know, we also feel like it's ultimately a hopeful story because they were, for all of those high-priced lawyers, for all of those secret settlements, for even this investigative firm of um, Black Cube, were no match for the brave sources uh, and the uh, ultimately the institution of the New York Times that was prepared to stand up to this bully. I want to talk about the New York Times in a moment and, and the particularly uh, the editors that, that you work with there and, um, and and how they helped you on this. But but just first, just to go back to this issue of how it went from this story about Harvey Weinstein to, as, as you know, your book says, helped to st- uh, start a movement. Did you expect that or was that just something that you thought might happen? We had no idea. I mean, 
Megan and I took a cab ride home a few nights before the story was published. We were working very late. We were exhausted. And as we sped through the New York City night, I mean, we looked at each other and we said, do do you think anybody will read this story? Uh, You have to remember, first of all, Harvey Weinstein was not that famous before this. And then second of all, a lot of people accepted this behavior as normal, you know, and thought, okay, sleazy behavior by a Hollywood producer, you know, that's not news. But one thing I should point out as we go back to this moment when we had no idea what would happen, and this, I think this really important point that none of this was inevitable or foretold is the fact that this is really a UK story. And it's part of why Megan and I are very glad to be sitting here with you in London at this moment. Because part of why this happened is that a very courageous group of British women made some decisions to help us. Somebody described this book as sort of a tense competition between the cowardice of Weinstein and the people who helped him on the one hand and the bravery of the sources on the other hand. And some of those sources are your countrywomen. Um, Laura Madden, who lives a pretty quiet life in Swansea, Wales. Laura went on the record really under extraordinary circumstances she was the first woman to go on the record before Ashley Judd did. And uh, Laura had faced breast cancer just before we had reported the story. And to our horror, as publication approached, we realized that the publication date of the story was going to collide with the date for some reconstructive breast surgery that Laura needed. And we thought, how can we ask a woman to go on the record under those circumstances? It, it's... It's so difficult to begin with, but at at that particular moment, it seemed like too much to ask. But we couldn't afford to lose her because she was the only woman who had given an interview who was on the record at that point. And so one night, um, right before the publication of the story, Laura called her teenage daughters into her kitchen in Wales and said, I have something to tell you. And they thought that she was going to say something about the surgery, but instead she told them her Weinstein story for the first time. And they were shocked. They had never pictured something like that happening to their mother. And then she was shocked because they opened up and started telling her about things that had happened with their friends that she had had no idea about. And the next morning, she sent us a note that said, I have been through life-changing health issues. I want a different world for my daughters. Confronting bullies is important. I'm happy to go on the record. A story like this wouldn't have been able to have been told without, obviously, the strength um, of your sources, uh, nor indeed with the tenacity of, of, of you guys as reporters, but it also couldn't be told um, without the strength of your uh, editors as well. And it was really fascinating um, reading your book and then reading Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, and contrasting his experience at NBC with editors who were essentially trying to shut down the investigation. Um, that he was carrying out into Weinstein, whereas you had editors who were with you, you know, 100% all the way. Um, tell us a bit about um, about Rebecca Corbett and about the, the way that uh, you've been working with your editors uh, on this story. Well, it was interesting. You know, sometimes in the course of our reporting, we would encounter... You know, we would knock on the doors or get on the phone with uh, people who had 
heard from journalists in the past, other journalists, we weren't the first people to show up on their doorsteps. In fact, in some cases, they had participated in some other attempts at reporting on Weinstein only to see those stories crumble. And so we would sometimes hear that from sources. They'd say, listen, you know, I don't know what the point is in working with you because Harvey Weinstein's just going to barge into the New York Times and, and, you know, put a stop to this story. He's going to march into the top editor's office. He's going to march into the to the publisher's office and kill this investigation. And he did try to do all of that. And he certainly did. He certainly did try to do that. But what we would say to them, and another thing that's been so nice in the course of writing this book, is to basically show how absolutely supportive the entire institution of the New York Times was. In fact, you know, the only concern we had was that there would be consequences for us if we didn't get to the finish line, you know, that we would, uh, you know, that we would be scolded by our bosses, who were actually giving us a lot of time and resources and had really high expectations for the investigation. Sometimes people say that it was two women who broke the Weinstein story. We always point out that it was three. Our editor, Rebecca Corbett, was by our side every single step of the way, uh, basically making sure that we were adhering to the highest standards of journalism possible, saying, okay, you know, you can't wait for women to go on the record. You've got to go in pursuit of these other types of documents that are going to help serve as evidence uh, for what's being alleged here. When we were in the final days of uh, preparing to write the story, Rebecca Corbett stayed up through the night on deadline, sleeping 45 minutes at her desk to make sure that every single word in the story was just right. You know, you get to meet Dave McCraw, the 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 really uh, fantastic uh, New York Times attorney who was facing off against uh, Harvey Weinstein's high-priced lawyers who were threatening lawsuits in the final hours. And you also meet Dean Baquet, the executive editor of the New York Times, the first African-American editor of the New York Times, who has also played an, an integral role in this investigation. And so, you know, it certainly was the, the while Harvey Weinstein had attempted to interfere with the investigation over many months, uh, it really was in the final two days when we had to go to him with all of our findings, everything that we were preparing to publish. That really did set off a pretty roller coaster forty eight hours in which he was really escalating all of his attempts to 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 stop this investigation, including bar- barging into the New York Times the day before the story was published. And you know, it was absolutely no match. I mean, every single step of the way he was encountering an entire institution that was prepared to face down a bully. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Talk to us about what happened after publication. Um, not just with the Harvey Weinstein story, but with, you know, what then seen from the outside, like this flood of similar stories uh, that came out and, and the start of this movement. Um, what was your experience of that? So basically what happened is that this became a team project across journalism. Look, journalism is competitive, but, you know, often during the fall of 2017, when we would see that the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post had gotten a particular story, we would think, great, great, because, you know, if the story was well done, if it was well documented, if it was convincing, we would think, you know, even the New York Times is struggling under the load of these tips. And and the Times team greatly expanded, by the way, and the paper had started out by committing enormous resources to this topic, and it only got bigger. But it just felt like the amount of work to be done was um, practically limitless. And so, On the whole, you know, I would say that this is a story about the power of journalism, and especially at a time when the truth feels like it's sometimes collapsing. Uh, The Weinstein story is just a case of, of facts really creating social change. But it's also a story about the limits of journalism, because the truth is that we can't do all of these stories. These stories take sometimes six months to do a single one correctly. And, you know, journalism stepped in where every other system had failed in this case. But journalism isn't a substitute for the other parts of that system, like the law or HR departments functioning correctly. Um, And just finally, Megan, you said this was a hopeful book. When you look at what's happened over the last couple of years with not just the Me Too movement, but then also the backlash against it, how hopeful are you? What do you think has changed and what do you think hasn't changed? You know, it would have been easy for us to stop our book with the moment that we published that Weinstein investigation, that first story. Uh, it, you know, it, and, and when you had kind of all of these tips starting to flood into the New York Times, it was a real high moment um, of the last two years. But we didn't stop there. We really reported into the year that followed as the Me Too movement took off in earnest. And actually, as things got more complicated uh, and more confusing, and we saw a backlash uh, emerge. And and we we you know what we've come out with after you know an additional year of intense reporting on that is that there it really comes down to three unanswered and pressing questions that we have not yet answered collectively. You know, one, what is the scope of behavior that's under scrutiny here? Are we just talking about, you know, basically hardcore rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment? Or are we talking about some of the more nuanced allegations of like inappropriate comments or uncomfortable touching in the workplace? Um, You know, and how far back are we going? Are we willing to examine allegations that go back to, say, the 1980s or even before? And second question is, what is the process for vetting these uh, allegations? We walk readers through all of the very sort of precise guidelines that we follow as journalists before we publish allegations of this kind. But you know, when it comes to HR departments and more broadly public opinion, you know, what are the standards that we're using to get to the bottom and ascertain the truth of what's happened? And then finally, what what you know? What does accountability look like? It's like very easy for people to insist on accountability, but when it comes to assigning 
accountability, things get much more complicated. And so we think that it's not until those questions are answered that everybody, both like people who have been accused and also, you know, victims making allegations uh, are going to kind of have consensus about making sure that everybody is receiving fairness and sort of adequate protection. We'll leave it there. Um, Megan Tui, Jody Cantor, thank you both very much indeed for coming in. Oh, thanks thank so much you. for having Thank you. It's a us. pleasure to be with you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And that's all we have time for this week. Uh, my thanks to Jody Cantor and Megan Tui for joining us here in London. Uh, their book, She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement, is out now. Uh, and you can also read Miranda Francis' review of that book in the next issue of Prospect, which is on newsstands in a fortnight's time. Uh, thank you also to Stephanie Boland, our producer of this week's podcast. Uh, remember, if you enjoyed listening, please do leave us a rating and a review wherever you are listening uh, we love to hear from you and it helps other people find the podcast my name is steve bloomfield thank you very much for listening we'll see you next week goodbye <laughs>